From Harris-Stowe State University, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We are broadcasting now from a part of what was once called Mill Creek Valley. The occasion is the unveiling of a mural honoring the neighborhood and its history. It was commissioned by Wells Fargo for display in the Wells Fargo Finance Education Center here at Harris-Stowe. Mill Creek Valley ran along the central corridor from 20th Street to St. Louis University. Over two centuries, it had evolved from a vibrant neighborhood to a poorer one, with a largely African-American population. In the 1950s, it was branded a slum, and voters approved demolition of that neighborhood in the name of urban renewal. Its residents moved on. Today we join Wells Fargo in remembering Mill Creek Valley. Joining us to do so are Gwen Moore, a former resident and curator of urban landscape and community identity at the Missouri Historical Society. Lisa Gates' father, banker Clifton Gates, was co-founder of Gateway National Bank, the first black-owned bank in Missouri which served banking and mortgage needs of African Americans. He attended Stowe Teachers College right here. Lisa is the director of the Office of Financial Empowerment in the St. Louis City Treasurer's Office. Terry Jones is Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Public Policy Administration at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. They are our panel. Give them a round of applause, if you will. I'll begin with Gwen Moore. As a former resident of the Mill Creek Valley community, what are your most prominent recollections of your early days here? Well, you know, let me say I, I saw Mill Creek through a child's eyes. Okay, so I have a, a positive um, uh, memories of, of Mill Creek. We lived at 328 South Garrison. My father and mother owned a house. One of the things I was reading about Mill Creek, and they always emphasize the negative, you know, no running water, outside toilets. We had running water, and we had indoor plumbing. We had a toilet. We had a bathroom. And I remember that uh, all my friends, I never went to anybody's house that had an outside toilet or, or didn't have running water. So maybe there were some, but that's not what I remember. So my memories are very pleasant. You know, my mother went to Vashon High School. <laughs> my oldest brother and sister went to Vashon High School. Uh, we start off at Johnson High School that was on the Cleed. I remember that. So, yeah, my memories of Mill Creek are all very pleasant. And uh, I remember being traumatized when... Uh, we were told that we had to move. And I, as a child, I didn't quite understand why. And I think that's what uh, piqued my interest in doing deeper and deeper research into the history of Mill Creek, because I wanted to understand why and how this happened. Because the neighborhood was, was decimated. Do you have any real recollection of how that word was passed directly to you, that you were going to have to leave your friends, your school? I think the first thing that I realized it is when they closed our uh, elementary school. And that was even before they, they destroyed Mill Creek. And they moved us to uh, another school, which was Waring. That was traumatic enough. And we were still in the neighborhood. But the fact that our school was destroyed, that's when I realized that things were going to change. So, yes. How, how tight a neighborhood was it, Gwen? Well, you know, I, like, like I said, I don't want to, want to sugarcoat Mill Creek, but I remember being very close to our neighbors. I remember Mother Vine, <laughs> who was like a grandmother who lived up the street and across the street, Miss Collins. And we really admired Miss Collins because Bernice Collins was going to Washington University. 
you know, we, we put a, a great deal of value on education and achievement. And so we really admired people that were going to college and doing well academically. So, yeah, I, I have some very positive memories of what it was like. I can't think of any negative memory, really. Lisa Gates, let me turn to you. Uh, your, your dad went to college here. He did. And here, in, in the, right in this uh, almost very spot. What did he tell you of, of those days? You know, my father didn't speak a lot of those days necessarily, but I think his primary focus, as my recollection, would be of Gateway National Bank, certainly, um, because I was a child at that time. But um, my father was one of the original co-founders of the only black-owned uh, financial institution in the state of Missouri. And, of course, this was created uh, because of the lack of um, loans that uh, the black community were able to get from the white banks and lack of job opportunities, uh, you know, other than, you know, menial positions. So, When did he start that bank? That bank was started in 1965. So it was sometime after the people were displaced from Mill Creek Valley. That's correct. But I, I imagine that he was helpful to some of those people nonetheless, even a few years later. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So um, I can tell you that even to this day, I have people that come up to me and tell me stories about how he was able to help them get their first loan uh, to start a business, as well as to uh, get their first loan to buy their first home. So that was, it was just a, a big role. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Gwen, let me just come back to, sure. to you to clear up one thing. Where did the people go? When they left this area? Oh, they went a lot of different places. Uh, we wound up in North St. Louis, and a lot of, I think a lot of us did wind up in North St. Louis, the West End. A lot of them went to the West End, just scattered. Um, they say some went into public housing. So, Well, Terry, that uh, will bring me to you to get some sense of, of what the, the mood of the city was at the time when uh, all of this was going on in the 50s. The elected leadership, particularly Mayor Darst, and then subsequently Mayor Tucker, along with a new business organization called Civic Progress, now not so new from our, in our memories, had plans for the development, the continued economic development of the St. Louis region. They realized from their perspective it could no longer be just the city. It needed to be the city and the county. And at the heart of their plans was the Central Corridor. Uh, and in order to make the Central Corridor work better, many things had to happen one of which they had to get rid of this neighborhood that was right in the middle of things, could, from their perspective, could be used for better purposes, both commercial, to a lesser extent residential, but also particularly to extend what was then the express highway, a four-lane limited access that ended at Choteau and Vandeventer to extend it all the way downtown, and they needed the land to do that and the interchanges for that land. They were able to take advantage of national laws about urban renewal and funding from the national government. Uh, the state of Missouri passed laws in the late 40s and early 50s, giving local governments the power to say to any area within that city, you're blighted, uh, and that we're going to change it, and they then could use the power of eminent domain to make that happen. Uh, and then the city also passed a bond issue in the mid-1950s to provide some of the local match money to make that happen all culminating in the uh, tearing down of this neighborhood in starting in 1959. 
and to make it personal, at which point I was a freshman across the street at St. Louis University, so I watched it come down. A lot of this sort of thing going on in the country at that time, in those years after World War II, correct? Yes, it was. Well, this, this was the largest urban renewal project in the United States in terms of acreage mm-hmm. and the number of people, current residents, affected by that. Roughly 20,000 people were living in Mill Creek Valley mm-hmm. in that. Gwen Moore, I was a little surprised to learn in reading some of the history that when this was going on, when people were voting to uh, finally uh, in- improve this area, as they put it, that the NAACP was very much in favor of this. Not in the beginning. In the beginning, there was some resistance because they felt that there weren't any plans to uh, adequately relocate people. And I think that was a sticking point. And uh, they did finally get on board when they were assured, I don't think not necessarily in good faith, uh, that people would be relocated to better housing. And, you know, it was the NAACP that labeled uh, urban renewal as Negro removal. So they realized that it was not a good plan. I think that uh, Mill Creek, that urban renewal program, Mill Creek, it became sort of the poster child of how not to do urban renewal. You cannot wipe out 5,000 buildings. Well, they left a couple standing. There were 43 historic churches, and they wiped those all out. Every building was was basically wiped out, and 20,000 people just sort of thrown, scattered to the four winds. To me, it was not well thought out, and definitely not well done. As a historian, can you take us back a little bit to before this period of time? I mean, this community, or a community here, Mill Creek community, existed mm-hmm. for 200 years before oh, the yeah. urban renewal people yeah. got at it. Yeah, in fact, it got its name um, 1765 is when Mill Creek uh, really got started. Uh, it was uh, a gentleman by the name of, I'm probably not pr- pronouncing his name correctly because he was French, uh, Joseph Taillon. Uh, he bought this, uh, he had this land here. Uh, and he built a mill on a creek. That's how I got his name, Mill Creek. Uh, and then when he, he sold that land to Pierre Laclede, one of the founding fathers, and then when Pierre Laclede died, that land uh, was bought by uh, uh, Auguste Chateau, and uh, he dammed that creek. And uh, from, from damming that creek, we got um, Chateau's Pond, and that was the site of the first park in St. Louis City. The first park was located in Mill Creek. And it was... It started off as a very affluent community. Very, very wealthy people lived in Mill Creek. Uh, General Sherman, uh, when he was in St. Louis, lived in Mill Creek. The owner of the Missouri Republican, uh, Knapp, lived in Mill Creek. George Barnett, who was a famous architect, he built over 2,500 buildings, including Henry Shaw's townhouse. Thomas Jefferson Whitman, who was Walt Whitman's brother, uh, who was the uh, chief city engineer and a water commissioner. And when Walt Whitman came here to St. Louis to visit his brother, he lived in Mill Creek. He stayed here in Mill Creek. So it was a very affluent community. It's just that as St. Louis developed and was becoming more and more industrial, of course, those wealthy people moved further and further uh, west to get away from the pollution and the industry and the noise and and left it sort of open for... um, Immigrants and African-Americans who came in uh, and started occupying the area. 
I have to take a break. We'll do that now and come back and continue our conversation as we remember Mill Creek Valley. Uh, my guests here at uh, Harris-Lowe State University are Gwen Moore, from whom you just heard, Lisa Gase, and Terry Jones. Back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And we are back to continue our remembrance of Mill Creek Valley, its history and, and its people. My guests uh, in Harris-Lowe State University are Gwen Moore, uh, Lisa Gates, and Terry Jones. Uh, Gwen, I'm going to come back to you once again because I, I want to bring into perspective what the Great Migration uh, meant to Mill Creek Valley uh, just after World War I. Yeah, well, that's when more and more blacks were moving from the south to the, to the north. And, of course, a lot of them uh, came here to St. Louis and... You know, the blacks were really confined basically to two neighborhoods here in St. Louis. Uh, confined almost not legally, but the the uh, our uh, real estate uh, people here had in 1923. They had decided that they would make sure that blacks lived in certain places. They called them Negro districts, and there were only certain places that blacks could live. So you didn't have many choices. Uh, more fluent people lived in, uh, more fluent blacks lived in, in the Ville, and more working class blacks lived in Mill Creek, and you didn't have too much of a choice of where you were going to live. You, you lived in, in either one of these places. Uh, but of course, you know, there were poor people living in the Ville and middle class people living in uh, Mill Creek. And I always like to point out, because they always emphasize this was a slum, you know, this was a terrible place. The black commercial district of St. Louis was in Mill Creek on Jefferson and Market. The St. Louis American was located there. The St. Louis Argus was located there. They had the People's Finance Building, which the St. Louis Argus said at the time, it was built in 1926, St. Louis Argus said that it was the first com commercial building built by blacks in the, city, in the, in the nation. Uh, I don't know if that's true, because he was an investor, so there might have been some hyperbole there. But it definitely was one of the first in St. Louis. And in that building, there were doctors, there were lawyers. Nathan Young had his offices there. Sidney Redman, Harvard Law School graduate. George Vaughn, who argued the Shelley versus Kramer case to the Supreme Court. Uh, so there were doctors, lawyers, all kind of businesses. So uh, it was a very uh, a, a lively district, and it was not just a place where it was only poor black people and it was a slum. There was a vibrant commercial district right in Mill Creek, and it was that way until they decided to destroy it. You know, Lisa Gates, let, let me turn to you. Part of the reason for our being here today is to not only honor and remember Mill Creek Valley, but the entrepreneurs who, uh, you know, passed through or lived here. What, what do you know of them? I mean, there are many people, and your, your father is also part of that mural, by the way, as you know, I'm sure. What do you know of, of, of that entrepreneurial spirit that applied here? So for one thing, I, and I go back to Gateway National Bank again, because um, the, all of the co-founders of that bank were professional black businessmen. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were uh, attorneys, uh, uh, real estate. And so, um, and they, again, they saw the need 
and they came up with a solution with coming up with uh, or or investing in um, Gateway National Bank. So, um, you know, I got to tell you, they were very courageous and pioneers back then to do and, mm -hmm. and create such a bank during that time. And I can't imagine the obstacles and the and uh, the setbacks they may have had along the way. Um, certainly as a child, my father never um, spoke of those obstacles, but again, they had to be there, <coughs> needless to say. So, Terry, back to you with regard to the way this was uh, met in this period of time. Um, this was a time in the 50s when Pruitt-Igo uh, came into being. In the mid-50s, yeah. Mid-50s. Um, when when uh, Mill Creek Valley was was uh, when the people were displaced, uh, Laclede Town came into being. It's, it's no longer here. Pruitt Igo is no longer here. Uh, this was a period of experimentation, I guess, in how to deal with uh, public housing. It was, in some extent, uh, it was also a period of uh, who can make the best use and make the most money uh, of the land that became available. So that, for example, in my four years, 59 to 63 at St. Louis University, one of the major stories was that university's attempt to get the land between Grand and Compton, which it successfully ultimately mm -hmm. did, uh, and with suits about whether or not a Catholic or faith-based institution should benefit from the whole project. Um, so that all played a very much of a part as, as things played the played their way out. You know, I get the impression that the people of that time uh, in this community and the policymakers didn't have much of a sense of history. And I'm thinking of a lot of history was removed uh, when this neighborhood was wiped off the wiped off the map. I think of what was done down uh, down in the riverfront when they built the Gateway Arch. You know, scores of historic buildings were lost in that and just kind of wiped away with barely a second thought. Well, your statement about they didn't have a sense of history in the 1950s can certainly apply. They don't have a sense of history in 2018. Um, so it, it, that's continued. Yeah. So, yes, there's very little knowledge among white population about what happened where when it comes to African Americans in our region. Can you just continue that a little bit? I'm, I don't want to use the term racist. But, you know, I, I think maybe the term has to be used, and there's an entire population just not, not considered at all uh, in, under the guise, if you will, of the public good. It was, uh, and it's certainly institutional racism. Uh, let me stress, this was enabled by a state law, two state laws, by a national law, by funding from national government, state government, and local governments. So this was public policy, not individual actions, which took a thriving neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, but a thriving neighborhood, and transformed it, chased the current residents out, tore down all the buildings so that somebody could use it in another way, and that was somebody's were white institutions. Gwen, what's your take on all well, of that? Let, let me just say something about that. There's a book uh, by a woman by the name of Mary Bartley. It's called Lost St. Louis. And one of the things that she says in that book about Mill Creek, well, she talks about these, of course, these beautiful buildings, these beautiful historic buildings. I mean, they were built for wealthy people. And she said there was never any survey to determine which buildings could be saved and which could be destroyed. They didn't care. There were buildings in Mill Creek that were in pristine condition. I remember reading uh, Judge Young um, 
in the same, of the St. Louis American newspaper, he tried to start a campaign to at least save uh, St. Paul AME Church. St. Paul AME Church was the first black church that was built entirely with black money. And he said, we've got to save this church. It was a beautiful church, great condition, nothing wrong with it, shouldn't have been torn down. He tried to start a campaign. We are going to save this church. This is our legacy. This is our history. Uh, But these city fathers didn't care about our legacy, and they didn't care about our history. They didn't care about what this church meant to us. But there were many buildings like that that could have been saved, that should have been saved. Uh, But uh, that was not the way they saw it. So you can take it for what it is. I think not only did they not, not that they just didn't know history, they didn't value the history. They definitely didn't value the history of this African-American community. Very few people did at that time. They didn't even think we had a history. But we did and we do. And uh, that neighborhood never should have been destroyed. Not every single building. Well, they left a few standing. But practically every building. 5,000 buildings? That's a lot of buildings. Were there many organized efforts to stop this from happening or to well, change Well, like I direction? said, Judge Young tried to, tried, was, was, not, was, was definitely a critical of, of what was going on. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think that our voices really carried much weight. I remember them saying, you know, well, you're going to go to a better place. You're going to go to a better place. You have a better place to live. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably bought that. But there was resistance. Bill Clay was critical of, of, of the Mill Creek uh, uh, debacle. In fact, he said, he said that uh, Mayor Tucker didn't win his next election because of Mill Creek. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. So there were people that were very much against what was going on. And indeed, uh, Ray Tucker did lose in 1965, but that was only after he had three terms to execute mm-hmm. a plan that he was very much in favor of. The mis- business community was lined up for it. Again, it had organized. Civic progress came into existence at the urging of Mayor Joe Dars. The labor community, by and large, was for it because they were going to get some of the land for what is now Council Plaza. Uh, so all of those things came together to be an overwhelming force for the project, for the effort. Can, Terry, I, say, can I say one more thing? Of course. There was also this steady drumbeat. And if you read the newspapers during that time, almost every single day in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which contributed money, by the way, to, the, to this project, to destroy Mill Creek. There was some article about why Mill Creek had to go. Always this is a slum. Every single article, almost, it's almost overwhelming when you read these newspapers and see the negative publicity that they gave to Mill Creek. They made it sound like a terrible place. You know, rats as big as cocker spaniels. I never saw one uh, that big. Uh, I mean, you know, no indoor plumbing, no running water. You know, this, this is a terrible... I mean, it was just this steady drumbeat of negative publicity, and it's, uh, that's kind of hard to resist. The Post ran a very long series, and the title of which was St. Louis Progress or mm-hmm. Decay, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. poster child for decay was Mill Creek Valley. Mm-hmm. Terry, you were a young student uh, at, at this time, and not very far from where we are right now. What were you thinking as a young white man watching this sort of thing go on? Um, not enough. I was not sensitive enough to the issues that I should have been t- um, I was very interested in the public, private, public religious form of the debate in St. Louis use, using, taking, a, quote, unquote, advantage of uh, public um, funds to expand its campus. I was at that point uh, editor of the University News, the newspaper, so it was a story that we covered heavily. 
but we did not cover the racial dimensions of that story at all. I'm very, I'm very sad that I did not. It's a sign of my insensitivity and not seeing what, what should have been seen because it was right in front of my eyes. Lisa, you're too young, I'm sure, to remember <laughs> these days. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but as, you, as you've learned the history of this period, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? Um, it's just amazing. As I said, the, the, um, the strength and the commitment that um, some of these gentlemen had in, in, in making changes for us, you know, so that we can make better choices and, and we can live where we want to live and, and we can uh, have businesses throughout the city wherever we want, you know. How difficult was it for your father, uh, you know, to get started, to, to create the, uh, the institution, if you will, that he did? So dad spent many years in the post office and um, from the post office, he started his own um, real estate company on Union Boulevard. And from there, he ventured into the banking industry uh, with the Gateway National Bank. And then from there, um, you know, he served on many civic boards, the uh, Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis, the NAACP, various uh, boards, but... Um, he he started a Miller beer distributorship. He was the only black beer distributor in the city of St. Louis. So he was very, very determined to be successful. Um, and at the same time, he always uh, had an open door uh, to help other people uh, to give advice and um, guide them in their journey to success as well. So, Gwen, how difficult might it have been for a young black entrepreneur in the period that we're talking about here to achieve success? Well, <laughs> probably maybe easier then than it is now. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to look nostalgically on segregation. It was a terrible thing, of course. <laughs> But blacks had to rely on their own devices. I think that's why we had a, a people's finance building because we didn't have, we couldn't go to those white buildings. We, by the way, uh, before people's finance building was people's finance corporation, which was a, a savings and loan that, that blacks created in Mill Creek. And that was in 1923. And in fact, that's the whole point of, of this mural where we're, we're really recognizing uh, those historic entrepreneurs that uh, forged such important financial institutions in St. Louis, and they forged quite a bit. You know, we have New Age Federal, which was a, a savings and loan in 1915. Um, so there were a lot of black businesses. We paid tribute to an Annie Malone, who, of course, you know, became a millionaire uh, because she had a business that catered to African Americans. But we had to rely on our own devices, so we developed a lot of businesses. <laughs> Uh, they said there were like hundreds of businesses in, in Mill Creek um, that catered to black people. We had to, we had to buy things. We couldn't go to black. We couldn't go to white restaurants. We couldn't go to white hotels. We couldn't go to uh, white theaters. Uh, we were so segregated that we had to create our own institutions, and that includes our financial institutions and commercial institutions, which we did, and they were quite successful. What about the entertainment? 
I, I read about many of the well-known premier entertainers whose names we all know uh, have had some transaction, if you will, with this neighborhood. Well, there was the Chestnut Valley <laughs> where, uh, you know, Tom Turpin, uh, who was given a lot of credit for doing, writing the first uh, rag piece, um, you know, which was an a, a, a entertainment uh, uh, center here in St. Louis. It was located in Mill Creek. Uh, Judge Young, who was, Judge, I can't say enough about Judge Young. I keep talking about Judge Young, but he was a Renaissance man. Um, and he did a lot of research, not only into, he did a lot of research into African-American history, uh, and he was also interested in the musical history of St. Louis. And he said that we were sort of the center of, of black music uh, during this period. And we're talking about the early 20th century. Uh, Tarara Boomdie, he said, was, was written right here in St. Louis. Uh, Frank, of course, Frankie and Johnny, Stagger Lee. Uh, so, yeah, it was a very rich, rich uh, entertainment uh, venue here in St. Louis in Mill Creek. Let me add baseball to that list as well. Uh, right. Roughly about 100 feet from where we are right now was the home of the St. Louis Stars and the Negro Baseball League, now currently the athletic baseball field for Harris Doe, and with stars like Cool, uh, Papa Bell, uh, and the center fielder on that team, one of the best base dealers of all time. You know, I think we have to ask the question, we talk about the destruction of a neighborhood, but look what we have now. In any sense of the word, was it worth it? Well, I'm going to say no. I mean, I mean, okay. So you 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 destroyed this neighborhood, and it was a, a a vibrant residential neighborhood that doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so you erected um, Laclede Town. That's gone. That's been torn down. Uh, there was Operation Breakthrough. That's gone. That was torn down. Uh, so it just keeps repeating this this cycle. It's no longer a residential neighborhood. Uh, I was reading one uh, uh, historian of the area who says that if Mill Creek hadn't been allowed to to remain, it would have been probably the most desired residential community in the city of St. Louis. Because, number one, you had those beautiful historic houses. It's close to everything. It would have been gentrified. So... I don't know if I consider it progress, but of course, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm biased and I'm unbiased. I'm, I'm biased because I was, uh, my family lived in Mill Creek, and uh, I try to say I'm unbiased because I'm looking at it historically as well. The mindset in the 1950s, Don, was that if you're going to take a neighborhood that had some challenges and improve it, the only way you could do that is to tear it down completely and start over. We don't have that mindset anymore. We now know that we can have improvement in place and bring neighborhoods along. But that was not the way it was then. We have to take another break. We'll do that now. We'll continue our recollection and remembrance of Mill Creek Valley in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And we are back, remembering Mill Creek Valley. Terry, let me come back to you and, 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 and say if you can see anything that you say, uh, you know, we really had to have this. I think Highway 40, there's commercial uh, uh, opportunities here and operations here. We certainly needed an interstate highway going from downtown west, but the route of that highway could have taken various paths. 
you could have built it over the railroad tracks, as we did in the stages closer to downtown. So you did not need to destroy a neighborhood to build the highway, even though the highway was necessary. Lisa, let me ask you, when you look at this area now, do you ever think, well, it's, it's too bad what happened to an earlier generation, but time marches on, progress is progress. You know, it's unfortunate. I think we did lose a very rich historical area. But, you know, I, I think we see that all too many times. Even even now we see buildings that are just torn down and there's not really a lot we can do about it. But uh, I think it was very, very unfortunate and a great loss. As we continue our conversation, I'll also ask members of our audience who may have questions on the subject at hand to come on up to the microphone. And as you do, we'll uh, have you ask those questions. We have a taker, ladies and gentlemen. We have a taker. Give me your name, if you would, sir, and then your question or comment. Sure. My name is Dr. Dwayne Smith, and I'm provost here at Harris Dell State University. And this is a very intriguing discussion. So my question is this. In 1954, the Brown decision outlawed legal segregation, and that led to a decline in white student enrollment in the public schools of St. Louis and also white flight during that time period. So my question is this, was there any correlation between the demise of Mill Creek to deal with the white flight and also under the guise, I guess, of urban renewal? Who would like to take that question? Gwen or Terry? Terry, well, you most, The best research can tell, and uh, Colin Gordon is the University of Iowa has done most of this, roughly 90% of the African-Americans living in Mill Creek Valley settled between Del Mar on the south and Natural Bridge on the north, between Jefferson on the east and roughly uh, Union on the west or Kings Highway. So it created pressure on those neighborhoods to accommodate that population, which then helped encourage white flight out of those neighborhoods. So it started the process. It's a domino effect, if you would. And so this was the first falling of the domino. Gwen, do you want to weigh in on I, that? You know, I, I guess I could speak to it on a personal level, too, because we moved to North St. Louis, and when we moved there, it was an integrated neighborhood. It didn't stay integrated long. Very, you know, it was definitely white flight. White people moved out, and it now, well, you know what North St. Louis looks like now. It's black, I'll, I'll just say that. Overwhelmingly African-American. So this displacement had a, had a terrific influence on what this community became and what it is today, correct? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. But the pattern of segregated housing started much earlier, but it certainly accentuated and propelled that to keep that the pattern, uh, North African-American, uh, non-North uh, white. Terry, you are quoted as saying that uh, the destruction of this neighborhood was a missed opportunity. What do you mean by that? This could have been a successful example, the first in the United States, of taking a community in place and strengthening it with a mix of private and public funds, possibly doing a few things that would require trimming or reshaping it, but not dramatically rooting it out and throwing it away. Is it realistic to think that public funds would have been available in 1959 for a it, project like that? Nope, it would not have happened. And you indicate maybe not even today. And the ability to marshal support for that would be very challenging. Yeah. Another question from our audience. Go ahead, please. Name first, if you would. 
My name is Leslie Holloway. I'm here at Harris Stowe State University, and I am a legend of Mill Creek Valley. My great grandmother owned a restaurant at the corner of Compton and Lawton, Love Me Lunchroom. And I grew up in Laclee Town, so I went through the transition from Laclee Town. My question is based on what my grandmother, my father, my parents told me about Mill Creek Valley and what I know of Laclee Town, there was a true sense of neighborhood. We were neighbors, we knew everyone, and I know it's a different time, but from your perspective, what can we do to get that sense of neighborhood back? We've all been moved around the city. What can we do to get that sense of neighborhood back? Because it definitely helped to make us who we are. To well, I think would you direct that question? To whomever can give me a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, you, you looked like you wanted to respond. No, I thought you were going to. Uh, no. But, you know, it's funny you say that because back in the day of Gateway Bank, I got to tell you, we felt like an extended family at that bank. We knew all of our customers by name. We had popcorn every day. We had donuts and coffee every first and the third. So people would come in not only to transact their banking business, but just to just kind of say hello and hi to everybody, you know, and just kind of like a, a get together. It was fantastic. I can remember we had one customer who was a member of the symphony and she always came in with her violin and this one particular day, she actually played for us in the lobby. What bank would you see that happen now? That's why I'm saying it was all a great community, and we were all like a family back then. And one of our former Gateway customers is in the audience today, and, and I know he can attest to that feeling that we had. Everybody was known by their name. They were not a number. So it makes a big difference, and that's a great loss. The situation in Mill Creek Valley was a large population and hundreds and hundreds of, of homes that were destroyed. Certainly the largest of many similar kinds of situations, Gwen, in this, in this area. I think of Meacham Park. I think of what is now the promenade out in Richmond Heights where the Target store is. And I think there are communities in Clayton that mm-hmm. were very, very rich and, and together and actual communities where people were so very close they're all gone, and they all went kind of the same way. Yeah. You can add Kenlock, which is going. But uh, I just want to give a plug to Dr. John Wright, who wrote a book called Disappearing Black Communities, where he does talk about all of those African-American communities that were so rich and vibrant. They had their challenges. I don't want to be nostalgic and look at the past through rose-colored glasses and sugarcoat anything. But those were communities of African-Americans, and they had their their challenges like any community. But the hand that they were dealt, I don't necessarily think it was fair. And I don't think we had enough of a voice as far as determining what happened to those communities. Another question from the audience. Your name, sir, and then the question or comment. My name is Mike Evans, and I'm an adjunct here at Harris University. And thank you, uh, Lisa, for that comment. I didn't eat all the donuts. <laughs> I just ate some of the donuts. You know, I miss Gateway Bank, I should say. I was one of the long-time members of that bank from when I got out of the military in the early 70s. So I really miss that bank. I would like to follow up on Leslie's question about relationships in Mill Creek. Given the relationships today, and I know that the communities, especially the community where I live, is a very nice neighborhood. It's... Uh, somewhat safe. 
However, I was robbed in September of last year in this in this neighborhood. I won't call the name, but you know, a lot of our neighborhoods have a lot of violence in it. And uh, what was Mill Creek like? What was the relationship in Mill Creek? Do you think between the police department and the residents? What was it like in terms of establishing not only just relationships with one another and families, but what about the black police department? We had a presentation on Ira Cooper, a detective that solved all his cases, and I was just wondering what what was it like back then? Well, you got to remember, I was a kid. And I didn't know anything about policemen. You know, when you read about Mill Creek, there's this conflict between what I remember and what you read about in the newspapers. And I know the newspapers were intent on, you know, Mill Creek being uh, destroyed. So, of course, they weren't going to say anything good. And, and one of the things they talked about was, was the high crime rate. They also talked about the fact that Mill Creek was costing more in terms of services than they were delivering in terms of taxes. So it was like we were a negative as far as uh, contributing to the city coffers, but we were really putting a lot of demands as far as services were concerned. We were putting less in and taking more out. So everything was negative. I don't remember, of course, I was a kid. I don't remember a lot of crime. And, I, you know, so from my own personal experience, and I don't remember anything about policemen either. I just don't remember that. I don't, you know, and like I said, all, all of my memories are very, very pleasant. I can't think of anything negative. I know that there are other people here from Mill Creek. Maybe they can speak to that, what they remember. But I can only rely on my own memory. Terry, I want to come back to something that Gwen had talked about with regard to the stories that were passed around at the time about crime and about negatives in this community. Is it your impression that that was probably true or that this was propaganda to influence the vote? Well, the, the, certainly the story and, and the numbers about the services, it costing the city more to provide services to this area than it was getting in terms of revenue from it is accurate as it is as most residential neighborhoods cost more to service than they do unless you know some of the use of the land was going to a not-for-profit St. Louis University which was non-revenue producing in itself. Cohesive neighborhoods we realize now more than any than we, we did then are the key one of the keys but it's certainly a very important factor to having a safe neighborhood so if people are watching out for each other not simply themselves and their families but the people next door watching those kids and vice versa, then you're going to have safer levels. So that we know that from our current research, and I have no reason to think that that would not have applied to Mill Creek Valley, which was a very cohesive neighborhood by all reports. Socially cohesive. Uh, quickly, Gwen, a thought on that? Uh, like I say, I, the way I'm looking at these, these newspaper reports and, and reading all these uh, uh, articles and, and the papers about how terrible Mill Creek was, and it just didn't jive with what I remember about the area. I'm not saying that it was negative propaganda, but they definitely accentuated the negative. Instead of the positive. Instead of the positive, because there were positives, but you wouldn't have thought it from reading uh, what people were saying at the time. A tactic that is not unknown, even in this day, (laughs) needless to say. Another question. Go ahead, please, ma'am. Hello, my name is Ashley Williams, and I work in community affairs at Wells Fargo Advisors. My question is about the aftermath for the entrepreneurs once Mill Creek was destroyed. Were they able to kind of start it up again once they were displaced into different neighborhoods, or was it just too much after the neighborhood was destroyed? I think that's an interesting research question. But you can imagine, 
you had all these businesses that were destroyed. It's not easy to just pick up and start over again. One of the things that I was looking at was, was people's finance building because you had so many businesses there. But you also had all these civil rights leaders located in this one place. You had the NAACP there. You had the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. You had the March on Washington movement, the Pacific movement of the Eastern world. You had Judge Young there and Sidney Redman and George Vaughn and Silence Garner, all these civil rights attorneys. And they would talk about meeting at this centralized place to discuss strategies for, for protest and pushing for equal rights. Thurgood Marshall or A. Philip Randolph came to town. They met at the People's Finance Building or right across the street at the deluxe restaurant, and they would be talking about what are we going to do about fighting racism and discrimination. And then I think all of a sudden, that centralized place where all those civil rights giants and leaders were in one place was gone. What did that do? I think about that, and I, I, I said, I'd I really like to dig deeper into that. What happened as a result of them destroying that, that, that central place for these great leaders and thinkers planning strategy about uh, fighting racism and discrimination? Yeah, it's hard to believe that they would just stop doing that, even though they were moved around. I guess that's something that research has to develop on. Uh, especially about the businesses. I, yeah. I would imagine it's really hard to start up a new business once you've been places for, for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mill Creek was a very old neighborhood. People had been there for scores and scores of years, and then all of a sudden. And, you know, one of the things that they said is that, well, we're going to pay for people to move, and we're going to give them this, and we're going to give them that. My family didn't get it, so I can't speak for other families, but I wonder about that, too. How, how much truth was in that? We have time for one more question. Go ahead, please. Uh, my name is Malika Horn, and for the sake of disclosure, uh, Gwen Moore is my sister. <laughs> and, and I believe she was pointing to me because I'm a year older, so she may think I know more about uh, Mill Creek. But I, I do recall, regarding the question that my colleague asked about the police, I don't remember any African-American police or any women police. So that should give you some indication of community policing or or the kind of relationship they have with the residents, that crime would probably be even more of a problem if you didn't have people, police people, police officers in your community who understood the people in the community. Mm -hmm. Then the last thing I wanted to talk about is the question you brought up about how much were the homeowners compensated? And... Gwen didn't mention this, but we ended up in the Post-Dispatch because our parents were holding out for more money. And the the article kind of criticized us for holding out for more money, which we got a little bit more. And I believe they had some kind of program to compensate in a fair manner these homeowners, but they didn't always do that. So those homeowners lost a lot of money, their homes being taken from them. Thank you. We are wrapping this up now. I'd like to ask each of the panelists to very briefly summarize what you think, and I'll start with you, Gwen, what you think the legacy of Mill Creek Valley is. Well, you know, like I have really been looking to the the history of Mill Creek, I'm I'm really fascinated by it, and I think it contributed a lot to the city of St. Louis. Uh, We talk about uh, what they contributed as far as uh, civil rights, contributed quite a bit because this is where uh, it was in Mill Creek where a lot of the planning or fighting of Jim Crow, because we were a Jim Crow city, a segregated city, a lot of that planning 
went on right in, in, in St. Louis, those uh, civil rights cases, those four civil rights cases that, well, three at the time, those three important civil rights cases, uh, they were planned in Mill Creek. Then the, the music uh, that Judge Young talks about, the center of black creative music was in Mill Creek. Josephine Baker talks about going to the Rosebud Cafe. And, uh, Scott Joplin played in Mill Creek. Uh, there was a lot going on. It contributed a lot to, to St. Louis. Uh, and even though it's, it's not here anymore, well, the, the space is here, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but the community is not here anymore. The community contributed a lot to St. Louis as it exists today. And I think uh, that's the legacy of Mill Creek. Terry? The legacy of Mill Creek from a public policy perspective is how a set of new laws at the state and national and local level can take a situation with significant amount of racial inequity, but with also positives associated with it, and make it much worse. And we did. Lisa? Well, Don, I have to be perfectly honest. I've learned a lot about Mill Creek today uh, that I did not know prior to coming to uh, today's um, session. So uh, I would love to sit down and, and speak with our other panelists on an extended time, even coming to the History Museum. I could just listen to the history all day. It's so rich, and it, it, it is a very unfortunate loss of a very rich environment. Maybe that's part of the legacy. It's true. To keep it living on through people mm-hmm. like those of you on the panel and people in the audience. Yes. That's it. Thank you all so much. Gwen Moore, Terry Jones, Lisa Gates. <laughs> Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.